The 1992-93 NBA season was a tour de force for the Phoenix Suns. They won a franchise record 62 games, they clinched first place in the competitive Western Conference, and they boasted the league's MVP, the round mound of rebound, Sir Charles Barkley. Barkley, 20-footer, yes, Charles Barkley! The world was shocked then when, when the Chicago Bulls upended this dream team in the final seconds of Game 6 of the 1993 NBA Finals. Suns fans around the world watched the final 14 seconds of this game like, like it was the Zapruder film, parsing each moment, wondering what went wrong. The Chicago Bulls, down by two, ran a play called the Blind Pig, where every player touched the ball. And with four seconds left, it wound up in the hands of John Paxson, a largely unheralded marksman whose life was about to change. The Suns looked amateurish by comparison, flummoxed as the ball changed hands. Uh, Charles Barkley frantically chased B.J. Armstrong. Suns point guard and future mayor of Sacramento, Kevin Johnson, collapsed on the floor. And my favorite player, Thunder Dan Marley, a two-time all-defensive player, raised his hands helplessly under the basket, 20 feet from the man with the ball, as if to signal a surrender. So what happened? Where did John Paxson's surge of confidence come from? And how did Dan Marley, a defensive master, so helplessly lose focus? It was me. I am responsible. Yes, I am the reason the Phoenix Suns lost the NBA Finals that year. Jesse Eisenberg. You know him as the star of The Social Network, Zombieland, The Squid and the Whale. But today we're going to ignore all that silly showbiz stuff and learn how Jesse Eisenberg changed history. And stick around to the end of the show for a special interview with Jesse. I'm Jonathan Mitchell, and this is The Truth. Now back to Jesse Eisenberg. It was 1993. I was in fourth grade, living in the middle of New Jersey. And my life was pretty boring. I had the same number of friends as I had enemies, one. And both my friend and my enemy were not such good versions of either one. That is, my, my friend, Teddy, was not such a good friend, and my enemy, Stephen, was not such a vicious rival. Teddy was a kind of friend by default. I didn't have much interest in other kids, and Teddy was kind of a doormat, so we hung out almost reluctantly, both just trying to get through the day. No one wants to sit with me. No one wants to sit with me either. Should we sit together? I don't care. And Stephen, my enemy, was only my enemy in the way Hitler was the enemy of Norway. He was a brute, and I was just a tiny country in his way. He would taunt me and Teddy by throwing mulch at our heads. Look at you losers whose names I'm not going to learn just sitting at the table together. If you were a real threat, I'd probably beat you up. But since you're insignificant, I'm just going to throw mulch at your head. <laughs> Ow! Now I understand how Hitler must have felt about Norway. I was distraught. I mean, I had never been bullied before, and though Teddy didn't seem to mind the abuse, I knew that I needed to take action to get back at Stephen. So I decided to write a letter to my favorite basketball player, Thunder Dan Marley, asking him for help. 
And though I was only nine years old, this fan letter would change the course of history. Dear Mr. Marley, I am a big fan of you. You're my favorite player. And I know that one day we will both be playing as teammates on the Phoenix Suns. I know how to draw the logo, and I'm a great dribbler. But I am really in trouble right now, and you're the only one who could help me. There's a kid named Steven at school, and every day he throws mulch at my head, and also at my friend Teddy's head. It doesn't usually hurt, but sometimes it does. I thought that if you could come to the school, just at the end of the day, when I'm waiting for the bus, you don't have to come for the whole day, and pretend like we're best friends, and then when Steven throws mulch, you can be like, hey, don't throw mulch at my best friend Jesse and his friend Teddy. And then Steven will be so scared, especially because you're six foot six and 222 pounds and score 13.9 points per game, that he will stop throwing mulch at my head, and then maybe he'll also think I was cool for having a friend like you, Dan Marley, who is also my favorite basketball player. And then Steven and I will become friends, and I can finally stop hanging out with Teddy after school. From your number one fan, Jesse Eisenberg from New Jersey. Now, uh, of course, on the surface, the letter seems totally innocuous. But in retrospect, it's easy to see how its recipient would have reacted. In fact, I've imagined the scene in the locker room when Dan Marley gets my letter. It's the day of the fateful Game 6 of the NBA Finals. And Sir Charles Barkley is suiting up when he hears Dan Marley in a rage. Dan Marley, what's wrong? Are you okay? No, Charles Barkley, I'm not okay. I'm furious. Why? What happened? This kid, Jesse Eisenberg from New Jersey, asked me to come visit him. Well, no, 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 that's just crazy. Doesn't he know we're in the finals? Apparently, he doesn't even care. What? That's a knucklehead. Now I'm enraged, too. And take a guess why he wants me to come visit him. Did he get into a car accident? Nope. Is he in a wheelchair? Nope. Well, I can't think of any other possible reason he'd ask you to leave during the most important game of your life. He wanted me to come visit him so I could defend him from some douchebag named Steven who's throwing mulch at his head. What? Well, why doesn't he just ask this Steven to stop throwing mulch at his head? Right? What is wrong with this world? Why is this Jesse bringing you into all of his problems? He says I'm his favorite player. But th- that's even more of a reason not to bother you during these sensitive times. Well, it's the damn NBA Finals. I'm furious. And he didn't even ask me how I'm doing. Or offer to fly me out to New Jersey so that I could save his life. Oh, I hate this knucklehead Jesse. I can't think straight. Now, how am I going to play great basketball today? What if I need to play defense during an important play? I am paralyzed with rage because of Jesse from New Jersey. As am I. Yes, this letter from Jesse all but assures us of a terrible game six in the NBA Finals tonight. It's impossible to see that working out any other way. And then, of course, I imagine the opposing team's locker room where Chicago Bulls shooting guard John Paxson has just finished reading a different fan letter. Oh, isn't this nice? Isn't what nice? Oh, hey, Michael Jordan. Hey, John Paxson. What are you reading? I was just reading this fan letter from a kid who broke both his legs in a car accident. Oh, wow. What's it say? It says, Dear Mr. Paxson, I'm currently in a wheelchair, and I will probably not be able to walk for a very long time, but I just wanted to wish you good luck in the NBA Finals. From Jeremy, age nine. That is a nice letter. Yes. Even though Jeremy's going through a really tough time, he still has the tact to figure out his place in the world and wish me luck. Yes. And further, he doesn't burden you with asking for any outlandish favors 
Like coming to a school to show off to his friends. Yes, this is how all fan letters should be written. Yes, I agree. And because of this child, I feel ready to play at my best. This child and his sensible note will allow us to win game six of the NBA Finals against the Phoenix Suns. <laughs> yes, it will. Yeah. And of course, they did win game six of the NBA Finals against the Phoenix Suns. John Paxson, bolstered by Jeremy's selflessness, would make his game-winning three-pointer with four seconds left. And the Phoenix Suns, with their innocence punctured by my solipsistic note, would collapse. And as of right now, because of me, they have the worst record in the entire league. The tragic fallout from my letter was not confined to the Suns. You see, Michael Jordan, buoyed by Jeremy's life-affirming fan letter and John Paxson's shot, would win his third straight NBA championship and decide to leave basketball. But worse than Jordan's departure from basketball was his really odd and questionable decision to play baseball. This move tarnished not just Jordan's athletic mystique, but also the sport of baseball, which is America's pastime, So therefore, by natural extension, Jordan's departure from basketball tarnished America, a country that in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War was at its unparalleled height. So is it possible that America, weakened by Michael Jordan's hubris, which stemmed directly from my crippling fan letter, led to our failed intervention in Somalia? Did the sour mood linger for two years, driving President Bill Clinton to act out sexually as a a desperate bomb to counteract America's diminished prestige? Have we ever truly scrutinized the housing crisis of 2007 as an inevitable outgrowth of a wave of societal risk-taking brought about by Michael Jordan's own risk-taking, his overestimation of his abilities as a baseball player? Is it possible that all of these American tragedies stem directly from my fan letter? Yes, it is possible. And yes, it is likely. Still, the question remains. Was I a butterfly, innocently flapping my wings in China, unaware of my disastrous ripples? Or was I J. Robert Oppenheimer, aware of the destructive power of my letter, and at best, an amoral participant? I truly don't know. After the Suns lost, I moved on from basketball developing an interest in obscure musical theater where the damage I could inflict would have fewer consequences. Teddy, my former friend, is still in New Jersey, married with two sons who are likely unstable, based on Teddy's wet blanket approach to life. If you kids don't behave, I'm going to keep driving to the amusement park as planned. And my bully, Stephen, now manages a hedge fund in Baltimore and has three kids who are likely severely damaged by his violent, immature tendencies. Hey, if you kids don't behave, I'm going to turn this car around, drive back home, and throw mulch at your heads. The last I saw of my former hero was about a decade ago. My sister and I were watching TV when Thunder Dan Marley showed up, shirtless, in a commercial for deodorant. I love to sweat. My sister accused me of being in love with him because I liked him and he wasn't wearing a shirt. I wanted to tell her that I wasn't in love with him, I just liked basketball. But I didn't say anything. I didn't fight back. Because, in a way, this is who I've become. My letter and the subsequent fallout has turned me into a passive eunuch. 
too scared to ever fight back. I will sulk through life, getting hit in the head by the proverbial mulch. My letter altered history exclusively for the worse. And so, I've put down my pen. If history is written by the winners, I'd rather be a loser. Jesse Eisenberg. That story was produced by me, Jonathan Mitchell, and it was originally made for Slate's new podcast, Upon Further Review, hosted by Mike Pesca and produced by Derek John. It's a podcast all about sports what-ifs, like what if Nixon was good at football, or what if the Dodgers never left Brooklyn. Just look for Slate's Upon Further Review wherever you get your podcasts. And stick around, because in a moment, we'll hear Mike Pesca talk with Jesse Eisenberg about how easy it is to make friends with basketball players when you're a movie star. But since we're at podcast halftime, I want to tell you about Simply Safe. Simply Safe is home security done right. It gives you reliable and comprehensive protection for all your windows and doors. It's been thoughtfully designed with sensors that are incredibly small, so you can put them all over your house and never notice. And it's got intelligent backups for if you lose power or lose the internet. And also, no contracts. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you protect your home. Go to simplysafe.com slash truth. That's simplysafe.com slash truth. Now here's Mike Pesca talking to Jesse Eisenberg. Before Jesse Eisenberg was a fan of the Phoenix Suns, he was actually a Knicks fan. So how'd you become a Knicks fan? When'd you become a Knicks fan? Do you remember the dawning of Knicks fandom? Yes, my dad went to like every game, uh, you know, because it was like $3 or something. I know, I know. Yeah, he sat in the worst seats, but he went to every game. And and, um, so it was inevitable that I should watch basketball with him. In that regard, I actually kind of stopped liking the Knicks when I was a little kid. I think because it just seemed too obvious. I was going to school, all the kids liked the Knicks or at the time the Chicago Bulls because they had Michael Jordan. And so I found the Phoenix Suns. I think I liked them because they were interesting colors yeah. and they had some dynamic players that I like Charles Barkley, Dan Marley, Kevin Johnson. Uh, Kevin Johnson was small. I felt like I could relate to him. And yeah, there was no one that was a Phoenix Suns fan where I grew up. I mean, it was kind of like, um, you know, it was a, it was a badge of honor to know kind of the minutia. In fact, I remember there was a, uh, there was a, a kid who was a Russian immigrant. This was, you know, right after the wall fell and there was, so we had like an influx of Russian immigrants in the school and there was this sweet kid named Ruben. And I remember my friends and I saying, do you know what number David Robinson is? And him saying no or oh. yet. And we were like, he's number 50. And my friends made fun of him. Now, I leave myself out of the making fun because I genuinely was horrified that we were. T- and now only in retrospect, how horrible it was, you know, for this kid to come from, you know, Soviet Russia and then not know what David Robinson's number is. And that has to be an important thing. So anyway. But that kid yeah. went on to become the GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves. He went home that day. <laughs> he studied hard. Um, so, yeah, no. Uh, at the end of this piece, I, I talk about actually um, having such guilt from writing this fan letter to Dan Marley that actually I end up uh, kind of divorcing myself from basketball and moving into musical theater. And that's exactly what happened. When I was like 14 years old, I started going into New York City and auditioning for off-Broadway plays and musicals. And I actually totally forgot about basketball. And then um, I had produced like the first play that I had written. And I finally, I guess, like felt at ease enough in my career in the arts to like get back and watch something recreational. So I started watching like basketball after 
the performances. And uh, I really started loving it again. So that that was your reward? That was my reward, But yeah. your NBA fandom now allows you to talk to players, mm-hmm. your, your, your stardom, shall we say. <laughs> you're, you're, you uh, have a relationship with Marv Albert. Um, yeah, Marv Albert uh, came because I wrote that piece in the New Yorker that I that piece about about your someone going to Marv Albert as a therapist. Yeah, that's a right, therapist. And then I think he got in touch with me or just to tell me that he liked it. Oh, so, that's good. Yeah, did you um, even expect that? No, I mean it never occurred to me because Marv Albert was like an icon for me growing up. My yep. dad was you know a huge Marv Albert fan, and um, I became like kind of friends with Andre Drummond, uh, you know the big man of the uh, Pistons. Yeah. yeah, he wanted to be an actor and told me I, I, I was sitting courtside at a at a because um, I was working in Detroit, and um, he told me he wanted to be an actor, and uh, he like had like really good critical analyses of the movies that I had been in. Like he was smart about it, very thoughtful about it. And so- So wait, um, let me, I got to go back. You were sitting courtside, but he was playing. So during the game, he would lean over to you and say this stuff? He, during timeouts? <laughs> no, no, during the game. During um, the game. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I became like, you know, the, uh, the, the fifth guy he had to slap hands with between foul shots. Yeah. <laughs> Little um, dab from Jesse. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Next one's not going in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's why he's 59% right now. No, um, after the game, the person who had gotten got me the tickets uh, was saying hi to me, and he came over. and um, And it's funny because you know he plays. Uh, I think I think he told me he likes to play angry. You know, yeah, he's yeah. a really sweet guy, and I'm learning now. A lot of guys do this; they play angry. You know, yeah. they. So yes. when when a player uh, plays angry, is that method acting? Um, so method acting is the idea that kind of like you are so invested that you can almost psychologically trick yourself into believing like you're the character. You're really experiencing those emotions. And I guess a basketball player playing angry, yeah, would do that. I, remember, I think Josh Smith was, Smith was on the team and he also played angry. And I realize it's just their mindset because they're yeah. playing a competitive sport. So, yeah. um, so he had kind of a scowl on his face during the game and I – he was the last person I would have expected to come up to me and tell me that the first "Now You See Me," uh, you know, had a great denouement. You know, so um, so uh, I was happy to talk to him. And you know, and these guys to me, you know, even though I'm you know in the public eye, these guys by virtue of their stature are always going to be more impressive to me than anybody in my field. Yeah. Yeah. Although if he if he complimented, say, the mise-en-scene of Now You See Me Too, <laughs> right, right, right. I've gone even further. Well, I probably would have dismissed him outright as just an athlete at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but the story doesn't end here. The day after the story was released on the Upon Further Review podcast, a quarter century after Jesse's fateful letter, the Bickley and Murata show on Arizona Sports Station 98.7 FM heard the episode and got the actual, real Thunder Dan Marley to respond to the story. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Jared sent to me this morning. And that led to an on-air summit between Jesse Eisenberg and Dan Marley, which you can hear right now because Upon Further Review has released it as a bonus episode. You'll hear what Dan Marley thinks is the real reason the Suns lost to the Bulls and whether or not he actually remembers getting Jesse's letter. Just look for Slate's Upon Further Review wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Mike Pesca and Derek John for allowing us to play the story on our show. Thanks also to the Magnet Theater. They give us a place to meet each week. They also offer classes and shows on improv, sketch, and storytelling in New York City. Find out more at magnettheater.com. The Truth is a part of Radiotopia from PRX. It's a curated network of extraordinary cutting-edge podcasts. Find out more at radiotopia.fm. And if you'd like to sponsor a future episode of The Truth, send an email to sponsor at radiotopia.fm. You can learn more about our show on our website, thetruthpodcast.com. Our associate producer is Davey Gardner. Our intern is Maria Bobbitt-Shurtok. I'm Jonathan Mitchell, and you have been hearing. 
the truth. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.